Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. I'm very excited today, so excited that I've dragged Zach along as well. I'm, I'm not quite sure. He feels a bit shell-shocked at the moment. Hello, Zach. Hello, boss. How are you doing? Not bad. This is going to be good, I promise. Yeah, no, I'm believing you. You sent me a WhatsApp going, you're going to want to be on this one. Get on you now. Need Otherwise you'll get slapped. The HD thing as well. Yeah, that there, there is that. Um, it was more the threat of physical violence that kind of... Uh, no, it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is going to be a good one. So today we are joined by Philida Scrivens, who's an author from Norfolk, who's written on the Second World War and East Anglian history. Today, though, we're going to be talking about her latest project, which is a book on the Great Thorpe Railway disaster and discussing how she was moved to write this book because of the event um, that happened less than a mile, sorry, less than half a mile from where she lives. Philida, lovely to have you. Welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? Hello. Thanks so much for inviting me. This is so exciting. I haven't done one of these before. Beth's going to have the right hump when she hears this as well, because her sister lives in Thorpe, so it's... Oh, yeah, really? Right, she okay. would be interested in it. Um, but I think she's currently tramping around a battlefield somewhere, so she'll get over it. <laughs> oh, it's all right for some, isn't it? This is mad. So I mean, now everyone who knows Britain and her railways knows that there aren't as many, certainly in East Anglia, as there used to be. Um, so why don't we start by telling everybody about sort of the latter half of the 19th century and about the Yarmouth and Norwich Railway? OK, well, this is certainly something that I was researching uh, just to get some background context to the actual accident. And you're absolutely right. The um, very conservative landowners in Norfolk really resisted this new form of transport because it meant they were going to dig up their land. And they weren't happy with the compensation and they didn't trust it. And so it was 14 years after that first railway in Liverpool that finally the um, parliament said, OK, let's have a Norfolk railway. And so it was 1842, Act of Parliament, as I say, and this is where the local story starts, because then the teams of navvies moved in. You know, these workmen that had built the canals and now they moved on to the laying railway tracks. It was a bit more complicated here in, in Thorpe St. Andrew. Um, if I refer to it as Thorpe next to Norwich, because that's how it was known in, um, in at the time. 
Um, and they had to dig a cut, a canal of water, which I live completely opposite. I can see that canal of water um, alongside the year in order to get a straight line between Norwich and Great Yarmouth on the coast. They had to dig up land, dig out a dirty great canal. Uh, and there was a lot of uh, fun and games went on in that summer of 1843. So by the time of our accident, it, it was a number of it was 30 years later. Um, that we had the railways up here. But you're quite right, it took a long time to get it sorted out. See, I've got overtones of a local guy. To me, there's a guy called John Mills who was in the Coldstream Guards during the Peninsula War. Don't worry, this isn't about to turn into a long Peninsula War anecdote, folks. <laughs> I'm not going to be that tedious, not today. Um, but after the war, he leaves the Coldstream Guards and he goes back to his country estate, which is a couple of miles north of where I live. And he basically opposes the railway being brought down from Ringwood down to Christchurch because it's going to go over his land and he wants to be compensated appropriately. And he's an MP, so he can do these things. And mm-hmm. there's a whole load of what I think on History Hack would probably call shithousery to uh, try and make that happen. Um, but let's let's talk about September 1874 and kind of the origins of the disaster. The weather's key in this, isn't it? Because it's totally. pretty shocking. It is. Do you know, the summer was okay. I did a lot of research looking backwards in the newspapers to see whether it had been a rough year, really, but not at all. The the newspapers are full of church fates and orphanage bazaars and all sorts of goodies. But come September, as so often happens up here on the North Sea, the rain comes in. And that particular morning, they do talk about the strong winds and the driving rain and the storm clouds, etc. And it absolutely is key when we get to the evening time and the accident happening. Um, and the way I sort of introduce that whole thing is that I have a number of the travellers um, in, in the book, a number of travellers um, fighting their way through the rain to get to the railway station, because after all, business goes on. And you didn't get many days off in those days. So a lot of the working people on board that, that day would have been out to Yarmouth for a day on the pier or to, to take the, the air or whatever. Um, but they couldn't let the rain stop and go because they wouldn't get another day off for ages. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. Weather is key. It's British as well, isn't it? I mean, it's just a little bit of rain. Yeah. Anyone, just get on with it. Um, but you talked about people still being about their business. And this is the key to your story, isn't it? And what I love the way... so. The large part of this story revolves around uh, a train going from Yarmouth back to Norwich one evening, doesn't it? Um, I love the way you've reconstructed the journey and you've got who was sitting where and what they'd been up to. So tell us about some of the people who were climbing onto that train at Yarmouth to go home. Well, there were actually two trains that are important, clearly, that will become clear. But yes, I do start with that one from Yarmouth because it seemed to have the most mix of people. I mean, you I really was surprised. I didn't know what to expect when I started looking at it. All I had was a list of the dead, about uh, 27 by the time the New Year newspapers came out. And every year here in Norfolk, we do commemorate it because the local papers repeat that list and they give a short praise of the story. So here I am with a list of people who were travelling that night, their ages and maybe their profession, if I was lucky, and no more. And as I say, to my surprise, they were members of the gentry. You had your really posh folk on the first class one, uh, a number of clergymen, uh, wealthy farmers, factory owners um, and a young dentist, a, met- a medical botanist. Now, he was fun because he was advertising every week in the EDP, the Eastern Daily Press, that with his 
medicinal potions. He could cure absolutely anything from sort of leprosy downwards. Um, and he held surgeries all around the area uh, most weeks. Um, I did discover later that he had a lot of bankruptcy problems. So you do wonder how much of that was uh, absolutely not true. Uh, and my beautiful heiress, Ellen, who I will tell you about later on, if I may. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, go down to the second class and the third class carriages. And those are the ones that are sort of made of paper almost. And you get your fishmongers, a couple of brothers going back to uh, King's Lynn for the evening. Um, shop girls, of course. A lot of a uh, lot of commerce in Norwich by this time. A lot of big stores. It was a, quite a shopping destination. So a lot of shop girls there. Um, a saddler from Great Yarmouth whose father turned out to be a fire and brimstone Methodist preacher. And what was quite fun was a group of Masonic gentlemen, all a little tipsy. Now, they were getting aboard at the other end on the train at Norwich, having just spent the evening celebrating the opening of their new lodge, the Walpole Lodge, which still exists. I have spoken in the rooms there about others of my books, and I just love it when you can keep you find somewhere in the past that links with something you know in the present and certainly this city of Norwich is full of that sort of thing and of course there were doctors on board and that proves very helpful later on so everyone really everyone uh, trying to get back oh and the lowest off flower show was on that's important too because they were all hooked up to the Yarmouth train to the train from Yarmouth uh, the mail train the last train out they were hooked aboard at Reedham which local people will know is a lovely riverside village. And they were at the rear of the train. And again, it's important to know that. And they've been to this flower show, an annual event. And the reports in the local paper about the, the largest um, lettuces, etc., is is a joy to behold. Uh, so there's all sorts of people on this train. Yeah. All about the lettuces. Can I ask a really nerdy kind of train geeky question? Oh, help. Yes. What type <laughs> of trains are we looking at during oh, this period? Now, yes. Now, obviously, they're steam trains. Uh, there's a chap called Robert Sinclair, who was a big uh, designer at the time. He was uh, top news, really, as far as trains went. Uh, they weren't that old. One was older than the other. They were very heavy. And when I do my talk, I do have some pictures and drawings of not the actual trains because clearly as you can imagine they were write-offs but the same model and many of them still exist today of course of their type out on um on the uh, heritage railways of which we have many in norfolk um but the point was that they they were they were very similar but One was larger than the other, and they were pulling a similar number of carriages. They had about 10 to 12 carriages behind each of them. Technical beyond that, I will refuse to to mention, just in case I get it wrong, because I will openly admit that this is a biographical book. The thrust, although it does tell you the story of the accident, is about those people on board who were travelling that day um, and who up till now have never been discovered. So tell us... um you mentioned Ellen, but there's yeah. certain characters in here that clearly you can tell when you look at the book, really, um, you've got quite attached to. Tell people about them. <laughs> uh, yes, there's a lovely draper from Oldborough, that beautiful a seaside uh, village uh, down in Suffolk um, called John Beat, And uh, he's, he's a guy in his 60s. 
and he's going home from doing some business in Norfolk. And what was joyous about him is that his family appear everywhere in the newspapers. He had five children, some of which went overseas and started businesses themselves. The girls, of course, tended to end up at home. One was badly disabled. His wife wasn't a fit woman. Um, and uh, his story of how he built up his business from virtually nothing and how his son wrecked it because he had no clue really which is such a shame isn't it um and it sort of fell apart and nobody's heard of it since otherwise i'm sure there would have been a big empire down there still um you had john hupton who was a saddler and he he was the fire and brimstone uh, son and he married a lady out in the y- the yards um no, the r- lanes i'm sorry the lanes in great yarmouth the famous lanes which still exist And I was able to then have the excuse to go and visit the lanes, research its history, discover exactly where he lived. So if I was able to find out more information about an individual, it clearly brought them more into focus. If you were just a pauper or maybe from a workhouse or there was one particular seamstress, there's very little about you. How I managed to build their stories up was by researching what other what the life was like for seamstresses and others at that time and sort of using uh, knowledge that I discovered I could create a story for them but we all leave a footprint on the earth but some of us much more than others. Let me ask about the mail train okay within that I mean idiots here to me a mail train is just kind of it, it takes the mail. It's literally um, yes. Absolutely. The last train of the day has has a special carriage with the, with all the mail in it. Yeah. But everyone's in a hurry, aren't they? So why is everybody kind of involved in this story in such? Yeah, a hurry? I was intrigued by your question, Zach, because I think the reason you you felt that is that it's the way I kind of tried to write it like a, a narrative drama. Mm. I wanted that pace to be kept up. I wanted people to, the reader, to be involved. I want you to be on that train. I want you to be at the station. And frankly, it's pouring down. It's nine o'clock at night. They didn't have many street lamps that sort of worked. It was all gas, wasn't it? Um, And I just think if you're in that situation, it is getting colder and colder, and your greatcoat is now really wet and really heavy, because that's how the clothes were, of course, your hems trailing in the mud, wouldn't you want to get home fast? I mean, I know I, I, of course, haven't got any written evidence of this, but I try to put myself in the position of those travellers and I would want to get to the station quick to get the handsome cab. You know how you move up the train when you're coming into a city so that you can get first in that taxi queue? I wouldn't doubt that a lot of the wealthier amongst them would have been thinking there'll be no handsomes left when I get there, we'll get soaking wet. Um, but I think more, Zach, it was the pace that I've tried to write those stories, building up to the collision that made you made you think that. And for that, I'm actually grateful to you for the comment because it means it worked. <laughs> Thank you. Indeed. So conditions have been deteriorating even more, haven't they? It is, but it is important to move on at this point to Thorpe Station in Norwich. Yeah. Because that's where the real action leading to this accident happens. And yes, indeed, at nine o'clock at night, the night inspector, Alfred Cooper, arrives at work for his night shift. He's doubtless wet, fed up, cold, and discovers yet again that the train from Nor- from London, laughably known as the Express, um, has not yet arrived. It's late again. 
So that, again, research showed that Great Eastern was had quite a good safety record. Been there sort of 20 years now. It's hardly lost anybody, really, apart from the odd person falling from the top of a carriage or whatever. But no big accidents. But, oh, boy, were they slow. And they were always late. And some people might say nothing changes. But no, we'll skip it. Sounds very yeah. strange. <laughs> But it's important to this, the story. So poor old Alfred, he thinks, what can I do? So he goes to his station master. They have a discussion. It gets a bit heated. And all this comes out in transcripts later of the various trials and inquests that go on. And they misunderstand each other. I believe that each one of them thinks they've got the upper hand in the conversation. Alfred storms out. And his choice is whether to bring the train up from Yarmouth, uh, the Brundle, which is now in Brundle, waiting for the express to come past it for this crucial detail it's so important there is single track line between brundle and norwich this is only temporary the double track is now laid but the inspector hasn't yet been to say it's safe the irony of that rings very true later on another week and this accident could not have happened but you can only have one train on one piece of single line track, clearly. And Alfred goes to his uh, telegraph officer, a young boy, John Robson, he's only 17, been in the job about a year, and says, send the train up from Brundle. Robson writes it down, waits for his inspector to sign it, as the rules say, but at that moment in time, into Thorpe Station, runs the London, the train from London. And Cooper decides his priority is to go and sort it out, get it out, um, go and, and look after the passengers, get the luggage off, change the engine, all the things they have to do. It's now very late and the passengers are getting fed up. Um, now, in the uh, in the office of John of John Robson, he's got his mates in. How many times do we see this? He's got at least four young men feet on the table chatting about girls, talking about the weather, their lodgings, etc., totally distracting the young man from his job. I believe he was showing off and he decided he'd send the message anyway without his inspector's signature. And it goes. And at the same time, they drop the flag and the London train goes. So we've now got two trains on the same track heading towards each other. Imagine that. So let's talk about, you know, that that impact moment, that collision. What, I guess the, the obvious, it sounds like quite a banal question, but what happens? Well, both drivers believe the other one is waiting for them. They both believe they're late. So it's tra- the both trains are now travelling between 30 and 40 miles per hour, which is doesn't sound fast to us, but with the weight behind it, and in those days that was kind of max speed. And they go past various, um, In uh, say the narrative tells you that they're going past various landmarks like the asylum and various other places. And because of the visibility, and we're back to the weather again, both drivers have got very, they can't see very far ahead. And as you know, when you're driving at night in the rain, with the wind, wind screen wipers going, you have to lean right in, don't you, to be able to see what's going on ahead of you. They would have maybe seen each other's lights, so they did have headlamps of sorts on the front, but not until it was far too late. The brakes were not good on those trains in those days. Um, and there is evidence 
evidence that was spoken of later in the um, inquiry report that both firemen had tried to apply the brakes, but it was too late. So those four men in the two cabs would have known that this was the end. And indeed, just beyond what's known now as the Rush Cutters Inn um, in Thorpeson next Norwich, Thorpeson Andrew now, right on the river, a most beautiful riverside inn. It hardly it's hardly changed at all from the outside. Um, it's just beyond that that the two trains collide. And the reports, particularly in the, the equivalent of the tabloids, if you like, of the day, are such that uh, it, the detail is amazing. Now, I have to take a lot of that at face value, but when I started to look at other eyewitness reports, drawings, etc., it does start to ring true. The engines forced each other up into a pyramid, so they rise up about 70 feet above the ground uh, with, and then start to collapse slowly from the pyramid. The, um, in, the carriages that are adjacent to those engines are pretty much the first class. There's also a, a, a fish wagon full of fish they all go in the sky up from Yarmouth clearly and a horse wagon behind the one from London that poor animal dies immediately I imagine as have the four the two drivers and the two firemen um, but everybody else's carriages in the first sort of six or so behind those engines start to splinter into a million little pieces of wood but these of course are flimsy and so if you don't die from the impact you could certainly get shrapneled it was just awful. And the descriptions, as I say, go into great detail about this. There's a sound like a massive clap of thunder. And that comes from eyewitnesses in the village here. Um, it was a busy village. It was a beautiful village. It was often visited by visitors from all over Norfolk for its lovely pubs, uh, the waterways. It's still here. I'm very fortunate to live on the water here. Um, people would row up and down, take your sweetheart out. It was a farming village. But equally, in latter years, the rich people from the city were buying up summer houses is here. So there are a lot of very wealthy people living here. And they all, in the darkness of half past nine at night, heard this enormous noise. And you know what? They open their doors and they run towards the smoke that's now rising above the pub. I just often used to wonder when writing this, how many of us would do that today? You know, would we pick up the phone and say 999 or would we actually go out? They do. They get their lanterns and they run like heck up the street, a street that I walk along most days. Uh, it is a bizarre experience when you're writing a book to be able to look out of the window and see the landmarks that you're writing about, albeit 147 years ago. Um, so they come out to help. Meanwhile, back at, at the station in Norwich, which for anyone who knows Norwich listening, is not the station you see today. That was built at the end of the century. Um, it was the original one from 1844. Um, and it had a lovely Italianate tower, but that's an aside issue. Meanwhile, as that London train leaves, everyone in charge realises there's nothing they can do to avoid a certain collision. They don't know where it'll happen, depends how fast each train is going. And you know what they did? They called for surgeons. They literally sent out those handsome cab drivers to the hospital, which is still known as the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, different site, same hospital, um, and sent them to St Giles Street, a very smart residential area where all the doctors lived in their fabulous houses. And they knocked on the doors and said, can they come out? Is your master in? Send them out with their little Gladstone bags with all the bits and pieces in. 
which they do. And these doctors head for the railway station. They climb aboard a special maintenance train and they chug off down the line past my house out here along Thorpe Island until finally they can see ahead of them the flames of the bonfires that have been lit by the villagers and the smoke. And this is their opportunity to get out and go and try and help the victims. It's a scene of total carnage, yes. So before the collision even happens, have people kind of got their act together and worked out, hang on, you've, what do you mean you sent that train? And Absolutely right. Wow. That's, that's... like slow motion. Like now you've just sent a text. Yes. No way. No, you couldn't get in touch messages, with these guys. They? They no, they're in a closed cab. There's no there's no messaging system. They've been given each of them have been given instructions to leave. So they both think there's nothing for no yeah. problem. We've been given permission. You can't oh. even fathom it, can you? You can't oh. even fathom it. And and yet, and, and the, the descriptions in the paper say that Alfred Cooper, the inspector, he goes pale. He can hardly talk with the horror. Because he would also realise that between him and his young his young telegraph operator, they have messed up big yeah. time. And they're both set down. Immediately, the station master says, you two are no longer on duty. Step down. You're not going to be a part of this. He realises the possible consequences. And sure enough, you know, later the two men are you know, uh, pulled up about it. Um, but in the meantime, what could they do? And they just know there's going to be casualties. Can I ask, before we move on to describe hmm. the rescue efforts and that, just for context, okay. has there been, this is early, 1874, has there been a crash like this before in Britain? Yes, there, there has. Um, there certainly has. And, and only about 10 years earlier was the famous one that Charles Dickens was in, um, which, um, which put him off travelling by train for life, uh, allegedly. Uh, but only 10 died that night. I say only 10, but 10 died that night. Single line crashes... Uh, were less frequent because uh, there were fewer of the tracks, etc., and they were travelling slower in the early days. In fact, I was so excited to find, and that sounds a bit morbid, but only four years before this accident, on that very same piece of track, the same thing had happened. Two trains had been set off on that piece of track, but it was daylight, it was a sunny day, the two drivers were not rushing and they could see each other coming it's a very straight piece of line you travel on it today when you go up to Yarmouth from here I've done that a number of times and they were able to stop with about four feet between the engines and it was a shocker and it should have been a lesson learnt but clearly by a little bit later on different personnel different weather conditions etc etc meant that this time they didn't get away with it uh, but how fascinating that that had happened. So, yeah, single line line track. This was this was considered later to be the worst of its kind on a single line up till then in the history of the railway. Yeah. Mm, there are no signals on this line. No, it was all between... done by telegraphs. Yeah, it was all done by messages being sent by what they considered to be a fabulous piece of kit. And I'm sure it was. It's a bit like getting a brand new computer. You know, when, when you set up a new office, uh, the Cook and Wheatstone five needle telegraph machine. And in the main, it worked very well. And, and as I say, um, Great Eastern, particularly, who were the first company to install it, um, hadn't got any problems with it. But it was clear after this event that human error could creep in and sadly did creep in. And uh, we, we will talk perhaps later about what happened then. But uh, in the meantime, yes, you've now got that horrific situation of a train heading towards 
something they didn't know what they were going to get to. What, what, what were they going to face when they got there? You know, the first aid was in its very rudimentary stages. The doctors were used to, to looking at people in their surgeries or in, in the surgical situation. What were they going to find? And I'm afraid it was pretty awful when they got there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So these surgeons turn up in a train that's basically been turned into what we would today think of as an ambulance in the sense of it's it's ferrying medical personnel to a scene in order to uh, provide treatment to something that they know has gone horribly wrong. They just don't know where. So how do those rescue efforts go? When they arrive there, the doctors will find the villagers from the masters through the butlers to the footmen to the grooms to the shopkeepers, etc., all literally pulling bodies out from piles of rubble, which included metal, of course, one of the funnels had seared off the arm of the train. Uh, so they're pulling bodies out and some of them are dead already. Some of them are bleeding heavily. Others uh, take their last gasp in, you know, with the, in the arms of the rescuer, etc. But there's nobody there who can really put bandages on or, or even give them brandy. Because believe it or not, these doctors stocked up on bottles of brandy before they got on that train. The local pub was raided because brandy was absolutely the panacea of everything. And uh, they needed a lot of it. Uh, and then the bodies were carried into the pub, both the three tons, laid out in the Skittle Alley and also in a nearby boatyard. Remember, it's a boat-building village, um, and uh, one of the uh, people there, I actually met his great-great-grandson when I was researching this, and he showed me exactly where Stephenfield had his boatyard. So in those two venues, you've got bodies laid out, and you've got the injured laid out. At this point, the doctors move in with their various bits of equipment and start to try and patch them up before that train, as you've just so aptly described it, becomes an ambulance. It chugs up and down the literally no more than seven to ten minutes distance between Thorpe and the station in Norwich, taking bodies in, which would then be carried onwards to the hospital. So it was a big operation, uh, which went on right the way through the night to about three in the morning, when eventually that maintenance train managed to lift the wreckage from the rails and believe it or not by 2 p.m the following afternoon the train to Yarmouth and and back the other way was up and running again can you imagine that happening today no can you also imagine anyone getting on that train the next day either well no quite uh people did people absolutely did but yes um 
going across that bridge, because it all happened just beyond the bridge over the air, would have put a lump in your throat. Yes, certainly. Yeah. It wasn't only that train that was taking people. From the city came up the road, anybody who had any form of wheeled transport that you could get people in the back. So you got farmer, all horse led, of course, uh, farmers' trucks and handsome cabs and people's fancy carriages. Uh, it was a massive humanity, you know, humanitarian effort. Um, and I think the people, particularly of Thorpe St Andrew nowadays, are still very proud of that. Um, and the city too, because, you know, so it really did take a lot of people to come and try and sort it out. And as those trucks and those those um, carriages would have been coming up out of the city towards Thorpe St Andrew, coming the other way with the walking wounded. There were 220 people aboard both trains, the total, and there were 70 were denoted as injured and made it into the hospital for um, outpatients, etc., or went home and recovered. Uh, 17 died on the night, a further 10 later, um, and the rest would have climbed down from the rear carriages, having only felt a shudder, a shunt. They'd have bumped their heads against the edge, maybe. They'd have looked out the window and said, what's going on ahead? Because the end carriages were the lucky ones. They could literally climb down onto the tracks and start making their way into what is about a 40 minute walk from here to the centre of the city. So you can imagine the scene a bit bit like, like you mentioned the Battle of the Somme earlier, didn't you, Alex? You know, it would be the people who would, who would survived it walking away, trying to escape the scene and to let their relatives and friends know that they were safe. You mentioned that people are now being taken back to the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. What does the scene look like there? Well, I was very lucky to find some original um, pieces of work uh, written at the time, not so much about this very night, but about how the outpatients department was at the time. And it was pretty much chaotic, but it existed. And they had doctors there um, on duty, of course, and nurses, uh, but they were not expecting this. So immediately the word goes out, anybody off duty, get them back on duty. Um, so new nurses would turn up as it became clear that you were going to get more and more people coming in. The doctor in charge was an absolute hero. He took charge. He sorted it out. He kept the press informed of what was going on. And if you could be released, you were given a wooden crutch generally and a bottle of purgative. So, you know, the, the use of the bowels in recovery from anything was highly considered. So you would have been walking away with a bottle of rather lovely stuff for the evening. Um, others were admitted, some immediately into surgery um, in, in an effort to, um, for them to survive. So, yes, it would have been a scene of, of bedlam, really, uh, rushing around, trying to get it sorted. And, of course, along with these relatives, uh, with these victims, their relatives rolled up. And there are accounts in the newspapers of the doctors saying, can you stop visiting the hospital? Can you not come in your droves? Because it would have been really push, push, push. Let me in. Let me in. This guy's worse than another. Um, but they did sort it out uh, and uh, they did take admitted many, which they then cared for as best they could. See, what's kind of striking me about this is this is 1874. Mm. If this kind of stuff was happening today, we'd go, well, yeah, this is this is standard. If it happened 50 years ago, we'd go, well, there are procedures. But this is an era where you haven't had to respond to events like this. 
So you're talking about stuff that today might seem like standard kind of emergency planning. Is this people kind of acting just off the cuff and just thinking this is the smart play and people getting it right? Or is there some kind of sense of people have had conversations within the profession and professions mm-hmm. on how would you deal with a situation like this? Uh, difficult to say, I will admit. It's not something I sort of looked into in depth, but thinking on my feet, I would have thought that London, with all its industry, would, of course, have been much more used to, as you just suggested, uh, accidents happening. Now, we're, Norwich by now is, yes, it's got a shoe industry, but it's equally very commercial. It's very agricultural still. And, of course, there's lots of accidents in agriculture. But uh, the hospital itself, until very recently at this time, was known for as a gallbladder and stones hospital. It was renowned worldwide for this particular skill. Uh, so it probably didn't have at that point much of an outpatient accident and emergency as we would know it. It's only in recent years that it's opened up open wards for all sorts of things. And I was actually surprised at how technical it was by now. You know, how they how they did know about um, how to space out the beds and ventilate it. Keep try and be as hygienic as you could because they were getting deaths through blood poisoning, etc., which of course still goes on today, sadly. And one or two of the victims who they did believe would survive, sadly didn't because of blood poisoning. Um, so I was actually surprised at how, yeah, how sophisticated it was for the time. We had ether, they had various ways of, you know, you could be put to sleep for an for operation. Um, and some of our doctors who I looked into with, uh, with quite a lot of depth had been and they researched all this. They they were they were really were keen to advance their profession. In the August, just a month before the accident, they'd had the big BMA, the big British Medical Association conference in Norfolk. And again, if you read those pages, that's fascinating because it tells you what the lectures were about, what the workshops were on. And it is all stuff that later, you know, a few decades or so later, will become commonplace. But at the time, um, was in its rudimentary sense um, stages, and and that was fascinating too. So yes, there was a lot given to medical help and attention, and the hospital did the very best they could under the circumstances they were working in. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. This is national news, isn't it? Mm, totally. Uh, The following day, believe it or not, the Eastern Daily Press aforementioned, which is still our local paper today, is one of the longest running uh, daily newspapers in the country. It usually sold about 2,000 copies every morning. It was tenfold the following day. They had to keep the presses running and everybody, but everybody, if you could read, you read it yourself. If you couldn't, you got someone else to read it. Everyone wanted to know if they knew anyone, of course. And, of, and there were, there were many city people who were mourned and lamented for a long time afterwards. 
neighbourhoods um, because they were well known in the city. I mean, you can imagine how fewer residents there were then. People sort of knew each other. Um, and by the day after, on the Saturday, and I was delighted to discover they had weekend supplements, just like we do, um, the names were listed. The, the Illustrated London News had sent, the, sent their um illustrator to meet with eyewitnesses so they could draw the famous pictures that we can all see online which appear in the book as well um and the, it was all um over the country and when you look up the list of different newspapers and journals that cover the story it's quite interesting to think people the name of thought next norwich was on everyone's lips uh, which was, it would never have been heard of by anyone before that and yes those stories didn't stop there the newspaper men wanted to continue following the story because, of course, it was all about the Great Eastern Railway and they are pulled apart in the press. And then the justice system in Norwich is examined and the inquests and the trial and on all the bits and pieces. So the actual coverage carries on right until the following summer with the compensation cases that come up against the railway company. So, yes, we are indeed national news at that point. Yeah. And there are certain individuals who come out of this tragedy looking pretty heroic. You kind of touched already on um, those in the hospital. Who comes out of this kind of having proven themselves to, to do the right things and to save people as a result of their actions? Yes, there were many, many. As I've already mentioned, the residents of the village, um, many of them unnamed, but named ones include John Patterson, which is a name that is well known in the city because he was a brewer and his uh, a beer factory went on for many years. And he lives in a fabulous house very close to mine. Um, his brother was the vicar who happened to be out that night. So he didn't get to join in, but he did organise the crowds, the rubberneckers who came out the following day. He, he came into his own then. Um, Dr. William Hills. Now, he's the superintendent of the so the asylum, the Norfolk Asylum, happens to be just up the road. He was probably having a nice quiet evening with a cigar and a port when he heard this crash. But he grabs hold of some of his staff. They get in their horse drawn ambulances and come to the scene where his medical knowledge is well useful. And there's a lovely quote about William Birkbeck banker. Norwich was famous for its banking, of course, lots of uh, big major banks, the beginnings of the Barclays, of course, here. Um, and William Birkbeck was self-styled Lord of the Manor. And he was described as, quote, behaving like a gentleman while working like a navvy. So I just love that thought that this guy in his rather expensive his suit with his wool waistcoat and his gold watch was just as much up to his his wrists and, and elbows in the muck as would have been his footman alongside him most probably um there was a publican of course john hart who allowed his skittle alley to be used as a makeshift mortuary and stephen field the boat builder who i mentioned earlier um, who did a very similar thing and was most helpful that night uh, and then the doctors themselves the doctors i just think went the extra mile to say keep the public informed try and and save people on the spot sadly not always successfully but they did get many many down the road into the city to get the medical help they required uh, hotels were open to put the excess uh, people in who couldn't get home maybe they lived at lower stoft or wherever um so that gave them an overnight um cover, uh, cover a bed for the night um 
So, yeah, many, many people. Now, clearly, if I was going to write about all of them, I'd still be writing this book. It took three years as it was. But um, I was able to identify some that I felt had the interesting stories alongside uh, more notable survivors too. But yes, I felt the heroes were worth acknowledging uh, within the pages, certainly. What have we got in terms of statistics for those that died? I mean, who's the youngest? Who's the oldest? Okay, yes, we had a baby in arms. There was a baby uh, belonging, there was an off-duty stoker who had decided this was a day to take his young family out to the coast for a bit of fresh air. It was his half day off. Uh, and coming back and his, uh, I don't like to give away too many spoilers. You can yeah. appreciate that. But I will tell you this. Um, yes, he um, he was knocked unconscious. His wife sadly died at the scene with her baby, six weeks old little boy, in her arms. And then he later died, leaving the three-year-old son an orphan who was taken into his relative's home for the rest of his life. And I was very interested to look at his story because I, my stories don't stop at this accident uh, those who survive like this little boy have a life he has more to do and he does end up working for the railways funnily enough um and i do track him right up to adulthood um so yeah the, you say statistics um tricky to say the oldest there was a a doctor a very well-known doctor a well-loved doctor who was just about to retire He'd done all his life's work. He now wanted to settle down and look more into photography. He was actually proving a, a very pioneering photographer and he wanted to do more of that. But unfortunately, that wasn't to be. Um, yes, those, those 17 who died, again, just as I said, with travellers on the train, covered all spectrum of Victorian society and class. So obviously, you know, and we've touched on this already, there's an inquiry, there kind of has to be an inquiry. Who takes the blame? There's even a trial, I think you, you said earlier. So, yeah. So who takes the blame? You know, is this kind of put on the 17-year-old who, who sends the thing off without consulting his, his inspector? Who, who's, who takes the rap for it? You see, these poor two men who were put up for um, inspection and... and, and, um, spec and oh, sorry. These two men who um, were eventually put on trial, the, the, the inspector, as you say, and the telegraph officer, um, they really went through the mill that winter because if I have to briefly explain that Thorpe next Norwich is in what we call Broadland. I don't actually live in the city of Norwich. I'm just outside it. But then there's the city of Norwich. So some people died here in Broadland. So you needed the county coroner for that inquest. But those who died at the station at the other end, who were taken away on that ambulance train, as we described earlier, and those who died in the hospital or at home in the city, had to have their inquest done by the city coroner and their respective juries. And, you know, believe it or not, both juries came out with a different verdict as to who was to blame. So they had to absolutely sort that one out. And this is where the um, Board of Trade inquiry came in. Uh, they came down from London, uh, Captain Tyler, a well-known chap at the time. And uh, eventually they put the blame squarely on the railway company, which opened up the compensation cases, of course, mainly for their not being punctual and for their staff becoming lax and not following procedures in later years. But equally, they wanted a scapegoat, so they put these two men on trial. 
And it, the verdicts came out again differently. It, it, just, it was a mess. It was so much of a mess that when you look at the national press around the spring of 1875, there are editorial pieces saying what a load of idiots the people of Norfolk were. They could not get their legal system sorted out. And at one point, both men thought they were going to be done for manslaughter. Then they changed their minds and one was and one wasn't. Um, if I may, I will answer, and we can always edit this if you prefer me to give the straight answer. Mm-hmm. The writer's answer um, with the spoiler thing is that both men were put on trial at the same time in the same dock. One gets off, one goes to prison for eight months. But don't tell us, make them buy the tell book. You. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, make them buy the make book. Them buy yes, the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you and I will tell Zach after we finish yeah, recording. Okay, we will. Um, so these two men stand in the in the dock. And if I tell you that the, the young man, the gentleman who wrote the foreword for the book, who's also a local historian and writer, Pete Goodrum, he has stood in that very dock because it's in a beautiful building in the city uh, known as Shire Hall no longer used for, for, for purpose, for legal purposes, but he has stood there when he was making a film about this uh, accident some years ago for the BBC. And he said it was the most weird experience because he knew about these two men, he knew about the trial, he knew the outcome, and yet here he was. And because if it hadn't been for lockdown, guys, I would have tried to get in there myself. I'd have moved mountains to get in and seen it. But we weren't allowed to go anywhere, were we? And I had a deadline to meet. So, um, yes, the, the, there was a trial. Uh, and this was those were the results, as I say. One was let off and one sent to prison for eight months. And that wasn't fun. It was Norwich City Castle. Norwich Castle was the uh, jail at the time. And when it said hard labour, which is what he got, it meant hard labour. And that was pretty horrible stuff. Uh, the pictures you can find in history books of that um, make you really feel for him. Um, and then, of course, finally, in the similar buildings, the Guild Hall here in Norwich and the Shire Hall were the compensation cases. Record cases, four million, the equivalent of four million pounds had to come out of the Great Eastern coffers uh, to pay the victims and their families and the survivors who couldn't work anymore. And I actually went on and found the transcripts of those trials, which are not usually brought up in local stories. When people talk about the accident, they tend to finish with the manslaughter trial. But there was more. And when you read those, you get so many more details about the injuries people received, how they felt afterwards, how they tried to go to the seaside to recuperate. It didn't work. How their families were suffering, uh, etc. Really wonderful, detailed historical um, information, which added layers to the narrative that I was able to put together. Um, And you had to feel sorry for them. The, The lawyers... Were, were absolute crooks, in my opinion. They were working one day for the railway, next day for a victim. And never did the victims get the money they asked for. Every single payout was less. Those, uh, the, it was true that if you could afford the top-notch lawyer, which, of course, Great Eastern could, then you normally, you normally um, won. They, none of them got away with it because the Great Eastern were forced to admit fault. And as such, nobody would be turned away. It was all down to how much money you got at the end of the day. And it, and it is a real insight into the Victorian legal system. Hmm. 
I'm annoyed that they didn't get what they asked for. Is there a legacy of the Great Thought Railway disaster in terms in terms of safety? Did it change anything? You mentioned that they almost this had almost happened once before, but they could see each other, so they stopped. Yeah. Um, did did this cause them to change anything? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A few months later, there was another similar accident, far less dead, but it was a single track. And the appeal went out to a guy called Edward Tyre, who'd been spending all his life uh, developing improved telegraph systems. By now, that that five um, that Cook and Wheatstone in Norfolk Norwich Station was quite old fashioned. He had been developing new ones, but it was mainly on double track the whole of the system was double track apart from that one little piece between Brundle and Norwich at the time of the accident so Edward Tyre set about looking specifically at single track accidents and how it could be stopped and by four years later his Tyre tablet system was finally patented and that you know was in use in New Zealand until 1964 and it was a very clunky piece of equipment as far as I could see but it seemed to work there were at each end of a single track was this big sort of uh, metal machine filled with round tablets heavy metal tablets and you weren't allowed to enter a piece of single track as a driver until you had one of those tablets in your hot hand which you then had to stop at the other end and hand out of the window to the operator and so it was it was such that you could never have two trains on one length of track. There's probably far more um, high-tech stuff about it than perhaps I've just described, but it absolutely worked. But it took another four years to get it done. And by now, a lot of the single tracks have been doubled anyway. So I doubt that it was in use that much. But it was certainly recognised as a result of the Great Thorpe Railway disaster that the system needed vastly improving the single tracks. Uh, Even though, as I said earlier, a week later, the whole of the system was double-tracked here. But there were single tracks in other parts of the country, and clearly they wanted to avoid such a collision, a head-on collision, happening again. Zach's got something to say. Go on. Uh, no, I was just going to wrap, but it, it's interesting that you talk about that system because I swear I've seen a, an equivalent. On, I used to spend my childhood hanging around steam railways, and I swear I've seen not necessarily exactly that system, but a variation of it where you have yeah. to reach out the cab and hang something up and absolutely yes they 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 definitely are still sitting in in signal boxes and and in in platform buildings around in all the wonderful heritage railways that we still have and again i was going to go and see one of the oldest victorian carriages in existence somewhere in essex but unfortunately the pandemic got in the way and i really couldn't delay getting this book out any longer bloody covid yeah, I know. You can go now. It'll be like a celebratory trip now. Yes. yes you're absolutely had right. I, must, I must do that because the, <laughs> the carriages, you know, became almost as fascinating as the engines uh, with their lighting. You know, one guy, um, one victim uh, allegedly got burnt by the gas flame that fell from the ceiling uh, when it happened and, and he died later of his injuries. I mean, the, and, and just to, to recap on those injuries, just for a second before you do wrap, um, yeah, they didn't know about shock, about how mm. delayed shock could kill you later, or in-depth internal injuries you couldn't see. Uh, and three or four people died many months later, and their relatives and their friends and even their, their doctors were convinced it was because of their injuries received or the shock they suffered 
at the Great Thought Railway accident. So I include them in my, my list of the dead. In, in their honour, really. Philida, this has been such an interesting session. Thank you. Well, I'm very conscious that we should try and encourage people to buy the books so that they can pay for your trip to go and see that railway carriage. <laughs> I'm not sure the royalties will ever quite kind of get to covering it because we all know what royalties are like when it comes to historical publishing. Yes. Not that I'm going to <laughs> complain or anything. Oh, wait, I just did. Never mind. Um, but the, the book will be available via the History Hack bookstore. Check the links in the description, folks. And thank you so much for your time today. This has been fascinating. I'm so grateful to you for your time. And, and it was so, it's always a pleasure to discuss, as you two know, your research, because it fills your head for so many months. You just need to get it out there, don't you? And your family get to the point where they're like, we don't care. Just shut up. Yeah, that, that happens here too. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.